Christian Beer Show. And this is a podcast that you've been doing? Yes, this is a podcast that I have every Sunday. I started it on the pandemic because I like talking and I was stuck in my house, not, not being able to talk that much. And I thought that specifically in psychiatry, we, we, we bring a lot of people from so suffering to coping and maybe a select uh, population. Sometimes they're able to go from coping to thriving. And I, I thought it would be a good idea to, have, to talk with a lot of people that I consider are thriving and enjoying their lives and have meaning in their lives and then maybe have people been able to listen to it and to understand that that thought process and what what leads them to become who they are and yeah you're thriving Mm -hmm. exactly and i think you're a great candidate for that specific topic in my opinion i've heard your story so many times. So for, for everybody listening, this is Dr. Breitbart. He's the chair of psychiatry at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And he has a beautiful story that brought him to where he is right now. And I've heard it probably 8,000 times, but, but I really like it. <laughs> and I think, it, I just wonder if, if you want to tell us a little bit about like what led you to be a psychiatrist and what led you to specifically focus on cancer and psychiatry. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Christian. I thank you. I first need to ask you, uh, why, how did it turn out that you've heard this story 8,000 times? Is it that, is it that I tell it so much? Or? I, well, I, I guess I'm exaggerating, but I, I think that you mention it every once in a while when somebody new comes to psychiatry or when somebody asks you, um, what, which happens a lot. I feel like a lot of people are very curious about your life. Probably because I think it comes from the authenticity and, and, and inevitably when you're like in the moment telling what you feel in a sort of unusual way compared to the typical psychiatrist that you would talk to, the immediate question is like, who is this guy? Right? Like, and then that comes up and then you're, you're ready to answer that. Right. Well, you know, um, we've been interviewing uh, new fellows, right, for, uh, for this coming for next July. Yeah. And uh, I like to interview the fellows uh, because uh, I feel like, uh, A, I want to see who the fellows are. I want to I be able to be a part of, I want to be informed about how we select the fellows. But also I think that um, uh, I can have a, a, a conversation with a fellow applicant that will be um, unique and completely different from any other interview that they will have with in any other program, with any other chair of a department or training program director, because I'm not gonna ask them the same questions like, uh, so tell me what, uh, what, what made you interested in psychiatry or how did you get interested in consultation liaison psychiatry or tell me about an interesting case. Um, I, I actually get into a conversation with them about uh, a number of things that no one else is ever going to really ask them. And, um, and, I, and in the process of this conversation, I almost always tell them my story. 
the story of how I got to uh, become who I am and do the work that I do. Uh, and uh, I try to explain them to them that uh, the work that you do, you know, being a, a psycho-oncologist, for instance, or a, a, psych, a CL psychiatrist, whatever, the work you do should be a reflection of who you are as a person. So uh, basically, um, I end up telling my story because uh, I am very, uh, I, I ask them who they are and who do they want to become and uh, you know what what they're what you know not only who they are but what is their intention in the world you know what is their you know why are they here in this world to do what what is it that they intend to do with their lives how do they intend to uh, create a life of significance and have an impact on the world and I make a presumption, actually, that most people uh, actually eventually agree with. But I make a presumption that uh, almost everyone who finds their way into uh, the field of healthcare, uh, you know, cancer-related care, uh, psych psychiatric, psychological aspects of dealing with cancer and things like that, I make an assumption that everyone is interested in suffering. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and then I, I you know, uh, I, I'll also ask them a little bit about what they, uh, how they understand suffering, et cetera. And it's very interesting. A lot of people don't understand uh, what suffering is. They, they may know it deep inside, but it's hard for them to express it. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit too, you know. But um, so it, uh, I end up telling them my story because people have trouble. Uh, I, I, I do a lot of teaching over the course of uh, of my career. Uh, I love to teach, and that and that has to do with my intention, the intention I have with my you know, in terms of what the impact of my life should be. Uh, and I'll tell the story so it'll be clear. Uh, but uh, um, I like to teach, and uh, I use the Socratic method and. Um, uh, there's a, uh, an attending on our faculty who we both know, uh, uh, Dr. Kearney, who's a pediatric psychologist, who was a, was, was a fellow about 10, 15, 20 years ago now. And uh, she would come on rounds with me and I would use the Socratic method. And I would basically ask the fellows questions until, to the point in which they really didn't know the answer. And then I would keep, I, uh, you know, and I, and I, I basically, um, uh, I, I, I think that even when you don't know the specific answer to a question, if you're, um, if you're someone who belongs at Sloan Kettering as a fellow or an attending, you should be I, ideally someone who, even if they don't know the answer, can somehow figure out the answer uh, or, or approximate you know, get close to what the answer might be based on the things that they do know, you know. So um, I, I really don't like it when people just give up and say, I don't know the answer, you know, please, you know, tell please me. Please tell me. Yeah, try, I, I encourage them to try to figure it out, you know. Well, you know this, and you know this, and you know this, and all those three things contribute to the answer to this, what do you think, you know. 
but uh, I actually made a few people cry, you know, by pressing them. And uh, Julia Kearney took me aside when she was a fellow. She said, Bill, this is not helping. Make, making them cry doesn't help them. When you see that they really don't know the answer, have pity on them and give them the answer. So I, I, I sort of stopped doing that. You know, I, uh, I, I still use the Socratic method and I, 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 to the point where people are a little uneasy, but I, I don't go so far as to, as to make them cry. I tell them the answers ahead of time. So I'm really focused on, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, what you just said makes me, makes me think of responsibility to the world a little bit. I guess, I guess I realized I never got the opportunity to round with you. And I don't, I definitely don't like crying in rounds. So in some ways, I'm, I'm grateful that didn't happen. And then in other ways, I'm, I'm kind of like, I, I want it to happen at some point to see how far we go into that Socratic method. But what you were saying, it makes me think of my responsibility for my life and, and, and how much as human beings, we take responsibility for our lives and our outcomes in our lives and, and our, even like the seeking of our personal happiness. If we give up and wanted to, to get that happiness, like somebody else to give it to us, we are kind of like doomed to failure in some way. Yeah. Well, you know, um, res responsibility is a very interesting thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, on some level, uh, it's, uh, it's an existential obligation, right? Uh, Kierkegaard taught us a few hundred years ago, um, he, he hypothesized that human beings were unique amongst all forms of life. Uh, and he may have been, and, uh, amongst all animals, he may have been wrong. There might be a few uh, animal species that actually have this ability as well as human beings, but we certainly have this unique ability, rather unique ability. Uh, Kierkegaard thought that human beings were unique in the fact that they were able to, that they were able to be aware of their existence that they could uh, objectively contemplate themselves. Uh, and that in fact, at some moment in life, at some point in life, you become aware, oh my God, I, uh, and you may not say my God, but you say, oh my, I, I, I'm here. Now what? What do I do with this fact that I exist? Another way of asking the question is, what is my ability to respond to the fact that I exist that I'm alive. Therefore, the word, the existential term responsibility, what is my ability to respond to that exist? Your, your existential obligation is to create a life. All right, you need to create a life. And you need to create a, a very specific kind of life. You need to create the life of a homo sapien, a human being can't create the life of a dog. You can't create the life of a whatever. You can only create the life of a human being, the, the, the animal that we are. Human is the animal that we are. Being is this, uh, this, uh, this suggestion, this belief that perhaps we are unique compared to other animals in the sense that we are beings. We have 
an essence that is unique to us. And that essence may be composed of uh, what people might describe as uh, what is unique about human, human beings, our ability to experience certain kinds of experiences like spiritual experiences or mystical experiences or the experience of awe. You know, um, you, can be you can be sitting at the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking out at the grandeur of the Grand Canyon and grandeur of nature and you can, you can be overwhelmed by the beauty of nature and the expanse of of the, of the Grand Canyon and feel the particles of your body connecting with all the particles of, the, of, of nature and the universe. And you can, you can feel infinite and, and endless and, uh, and, and forever, you know? Um, uh, but that rat that's, that, that's sitting next to you looking at the Grand Canyon cannot have that experience. So it's that being the essence part of our ability to experience awe. Uh, so you need to create uh, a life of who you are. Now, uh, Kierkegaard also said that once you become aware of your life, that you exist, uh, you have two overwhelming emotions, the emotion of dread and the emotion of awe. The emotion of dread is basically this idea that, oh my God, I exist, but I'm mortal, I'm finite, and I, I die at some point and in fact i could die at any moment it could happen at any moment i really can't even predict it uh at this point um it could happen at any moment it could happen during this interview christian it could happen right now right now yeah and so uh that that that's a very important fact <laughs> and it's related to this it's related to, uh, you know, and it's, and then the other experience is awe, the experience of the beauty of life, what it feels like to fall in love, what it feels like to love a parent or a child, what it feels like to love God, to be in love with nature, beauty, art, music, film, food, um, to experience joy, right? Uh, to experience the joy of something painful even, like your own death or, or the birth of a child, you know? Um, so awe is, is, this, is this wonderful thing. The, you know, it's, uh, it's basically what Albert Hoffman experienced when he uh, was experimenting as a young scientist in Switzerland and what became Bayer Laboratories was trying to uh, isolate ergot alkaloids from fungus on rice seeds, he accidentally, or he, what he isolated was lysergic acid and he accidentally ingested it. And then he went home and suddenly he had this experience of awe the grandeur, every blade of grass was so like distinct and beautiful and the smells of everything. And he just experienced life in an, he experienced ecstasy. He left his, he became bigger than his body. Mm -hmm. He was no longer defined by the limitations of his physical body. 
That's all. <laughs> and that's how we feel when we, we experience ecstasy, not the drug <laughs> ecstasy, but the ecstasy of falling in love. It doesn't matter. Uh, so when you create a life, you have to create a human life which has, contains in it both awe and dread. So you have to create a life in which you develop an attitude and a relationship towards both the awesomeness of life, the beauty, the joys, the pleasures of life, and the fact that we die and we're finite. So you have to develop an attitude of connection and relationship to that as you create your life. Most of us don't pay attention to the dread part. We try to deny it. And that's because it's full of fear, right? Mm -hmm. Dread, angst, it's all fear. And we were having a discussion with some people the other day, and I was making the point about dread, you know, and fear. Yeah, I remember. Our bodies, evolutionarily, you know, we have systems within our bodies. The automatic, our, our brain is automatically sent, set to res respond in fear to threats. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the one thing that is very well developed and it is existed in our brains for hundreds of thousands of years if not longer right and uh it's it's the it's it's the most primitive basic apparatus within our brain right the most most basic function of our brain which is to to make us run from being extinguished make us run from something that threatens our existence death right uh, so we don't have to go very far and we don't have to seek out things that are frightening because life brings us all sorts of frightening things and the seeds of our death are, we're born with them, right? You know, we're born with them. The, the, in our genes are the seeds of what's going to age us, what's going to give us the diseases we're going to get, you know, it's, it's, it's built into our uh, finite our obsolescence is built in we're like we're like apple computers we weren't we weren't built to last forever uh there there, there was there was uh, evolutionarily i suppose uh we were supposed to make room for the next versions of uh, homo sapiens and, you know like like lemmings you know at some point when there are too many of us we have to uh, we have to walk off cliffs or something like that. But, uh, you know, so we're built in to do that. Um, but awe you have to seek out. Awe you have to, you have to look to fall in love with somebody, you know? You have to have the courage to, to create a life, to, to, to appreciate the awe of the experience of, of um, falling in love with somebody, right? Or to create something of beauty, to create a life of of meaning and intention and significance you need courage to do that you need to in, uh, uh, assert some intention and action right mm -hmm. so so our obligation is to create a life a life that's unique to us right uh, which is a big challenge because uh not only you know when when we talk about life and talking about creating a life we're talking about 
creating a life that we're given, right? We don't create ourselves. We're, we're given this life. Uh, the other day, a year, a few years ago, I was looking in the mirror, as I often do, uh, and I was saying to myself, what is the one thing I know absolute, for absolute certainty? You know, the more, the older you get, the more you know, the more you learn, the more I think, the more you realize you don't know what, you, know, you really don't know, you, you, you only know, a, a, you know, the smallest little bit of, of what you, of what there is to know in the world, right? You know how ignorant you are. So I said, what do I really know for certain? And I said to myself, the only thing I really know for certain, and I didn't always know this because I had the, uh, the fantasy, like a lot of people, that I was adopted, because I looked at my parents and I go, I can't possibly, they can't possibly be my parents. I'm nothing like them. I mean, these fools, how did they raise me? I mean, you know, I, and my brother definitely was adopted, you know, <laughs> I had this adoption. But I said to myself, and, and now I, I have this Jewish genetic disease that both my parents had. So I know that they were my parents, you know. <laughs> Uh, I know for certain, and I said to myself, the only thing I know for certain is that I am the son of Rose and Moish Breitbart. That's all I know for certain. Mm. Everything else, I'm not 100% sure of. <laughs> but that I know for sure. And what that really reflects is the fact that uh, we have a connection to the past, present, and the future, we are part of a continuum of human beings, right? With our ancestors, uh, uh, there's a continuum from our ancestors through us to the future. There's a Doobie Brothers song called, uh, I'm Here to Love You, and there's one line that says, uh, I think that passing love along is what we were born to do. So we're really creatures that are here to pass along maybe love, maybe knowledge, wisdom, our genes, right? All these kinds of things. There are researchers at, at uh, Sloan Kettering Institute who think that the dominant life form on Earth is DNA. And the only purpose of human beings is to carry DNA from one generation to the next. We're just basically, um, you know, delivery uh, people, you know, we're, we're, we're like a post office, you know, we just deliver the DNA to the future. Um, so basically, when you're trying, when, when, when you're asking somebody, you know, who are you, you're asking them, you know, so who, you're, you're, you're creating a life, who are you trying to become in the world? And obviously, that has a lot to do with the, what you were given by your family, by your ancestors. And, you know, you, what you were given, you had no choice about, right? Mm -hmm. I had no choice who my parents were going to be. I know you did, but I, I, <laughs> but, but I didn't have a choice who my parents were going to be. I didn't have a choice of, you know, the genetics that I was going to be given. I didn't have a choice of what epoch what era of time of the of the of the earth i was going to be born into if i was born in the 1800s 1800s or 17 late 1700s 
1800s in Poland, where my family was originally, um, I would have been a rabbi probably instead mm -hmm. of a, a psychiatrist. Uh, you know, we didn't choose that. I didn't choose to be born into a, a, a family, uh, you know, an Eastern European Jewish family uh, on the Lower East Side. I could have been born in a favela in Rio de Janeiro. Mm -hmm. I could have been, and you know, I could have been born in India and raised to think that God is a blue elephant. I could, uh, the, uh, right? The, yeah. It was none. None of that was under my control. So there was all this that I was given. And uh, in, uh, in meaning sentence psychotherapy, we call it, we talk it the leg. We, we call it the legacy that you're given. So you're given this legacy. You're given the genetics. You're given the the culture. You're given the values. You're given one parent, two parents, grandparents, no grandparents. You're given. Um, the socioeconomic kinds of uh, structure, where, where the culture, the country, whatever. And then you have to decide when you create your own life, what am I going to preserve? What values will I preserve and make them central to my life? Or how am I going to, how is the life that I'm going to create, how is that going to be unique, right? Separate from from theirs, different from theirs, but perhaps inspired by them in some way, mm -hmm. uh, or perhaps uh, rejecting them in some way, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I, I ask people, you know, who are you? Who are you trying to become? And they have a very difficult time doing that. And who we become uh, is composed of our attitudes towards the world, towards life, towards death, you know, towards uh, towards everything, right? Towards ourselves, our our conscious, aware self, our values, our intention. What is our intention in the world? Um, you know, what 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 impact do we want to have in the world? What significance do we have in the world? Uh, significance is an interesting idea, you know, and it boils down to everyone, every human being needs to feel that there was some sign that they were here in the world. Somebody saw them. And even if it's only your aware, conscious self that observes you constantly, even that, if that's your only witness to life, then at least there's been one witness. But you know, so there's some sign, some significance, the word significance starts with, with the word sign, right? Some sign that it was here. So they have a hard time uh, describing who they are, and um, and who they want to become. They're very good. They're very people are very good at saying what I want to do, uh, and so that's where uh, we start to talk about things like their families, their their values, their attitudes for the world, uh, and what their intention with their lives is. And some people might call it the purpose, but I like the word intent. What do you intend to? Do with your life, or what do you what do you intend to do with the who that you are? And I sometimes describe, you know, I you know they have a difficult time. So I said, so I'm 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 a I'm a person who uh, is who is love, loving. I'm love, and my intention is to ease suffering in the world. And I do that through the work that I do. 
So the story that you've heard me tell 8,000 times is the story of how did I become interested in being someone who impacts impacts suffering in the world. And that's the story that I usually tell. And you know, it's, yeah, go ahead, Christian. Yeah, it's like, I'm thinking about what you're saying right now from, from Kierkegaard to the expression, to our ability to respond to life as a self-aware human being, having dread and having awe and being born in a specific time geographic location to a specific biological family and how to use that that we have to create ourselves maximizing the amount of awe in our life which is in my opinion maybe as awe is it's almost a synonym of love for our self-experience and maybe also we could extend it to the experience of others and then I, in an ideal world, then it becomes like the life we want to create is one to maximize our awe and the awe of others. And That's correct. And, and I know yesterday you, you actually, I saw you nodding and smiling when I made an analogy about a tree, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? I was saying that trees you know, and other plants, you know, there's, there's there, there are roots, they don't move, right? We have legs and feet, you know, and all that kind of stuff, we can move around. Uh, so uh, a, a tree is forced to get all of its awe, all of its nutrition uh, passively. If the sun comes out, it gets sunshine. If the sun doesn't come out, if it's cloudy, it doesn't get sunshine. If it rains, it gets the water it needs, you know? Uh, so it's passive. And that's a little bit like what I, when I talk about dread and fear, we don't have to move around very much. It comes, life brings it to us all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. Phone calls, uh, emails, <laughs> it comes over, over the internet. It, it, you know, it comes through the air, aerosolizes virus. It's, it, it'll, it'll find us, right? right. Uh, but all you have to go searching for, meaning you have to go searching for. It wasn't a coincidence that Viktor Frankl called his book Man's Search for Meaning. You have to go searching for meaning. You have to take particular actions. You have to, um, you have, to have particular intentions. You have to... Now, there are a lot of people who live very meaningful lives accidentally and unintentionally. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but if you are aware of what some of the sources of meaning are, you know, love, connection, creativity, the attitudes that you take towards life, the, the, the historical context of life, then you can purposely go and create meaning in your life. You can create it and experience it and re-experience it. And you can seek out awe. You can seek out love. You can seek out pleasure. You can seek out uh, adventures. You, you can take a trip to Quiakil. You can do all <laughs> sorts of things. Or you can, uh, you know, take a, a, a psychedelic and have a mystical experience. That, that's awesome. Right, uh, or go to the Grand Canyon. Even better yet, cheaper <laughs> or or less dangerous. But um, so uh, so that was an interesting thing. So um, so what I often tell people is the story of like you know uh, of 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 how I got how my background, how my my roots, <laughs> how my ancestors, how my family, the experience of my family. 
uh, and my uh, influence who I became in the world and how I, I used that experience of my family and, and, and the environment and the, the parents I was raised by, the, the, the environment I grew up in, um, the time in history that I was born into and all that, how that influenced, how I used that to help me create who I am. And so I'll tell, I'll tell the story for your listeners, right? So um, my parents were, were both uh, Holocaust survivors from Eastern Europe, from a small town of Poland. And when the war broke out, my mother was 14 years old and my father was 17. My mother at age 14, uh, the war broke out, my mother and her parents were hidden in a hole under the stove of a Catholic woman who sheltered them, who hid them uh, in this hole under her stove in her barn. And she hid them for several years. My father was uh, sort of taken into the Russian army involuntarily as it came through town. And he happened to be at the end of a very long line. And he just quickly and slyly slipped into the forest, (laughs) Uh, you you know, left the line, ran away. And he connected with a group of about 100, 150 partisans, partisan fighters. There were 100, 150 people. Uh, some of them were middle-aged, some were older. There were families with young children. There were young, a lot of young people, anywhere from you know his age to the mid-20s, 30s. Uh, they were armed. They, uh, they occasionally had to use those weapons to survive, to uh, mainly fight off Ukrainians and, and, and Germans. Um, and, uh, you know, unlike those of us who are, uh, who had to go through <coughs> stay at home uh, <coughs> uh, orders from New York State, you know, we did, they didn't have, uh, in the forest, they didn't have uh, uh, Netflix or cell phones or internet or delivery from Whole Foods or anything like that. They, you know, so my father would have to go uh, look for food he, and he would go uh, search for food. They would send out a little delegation of three or four guys with weapons to get food. And they came across this barn. They would look and there were chickens in this barn. My father and I've, I, I don't eat chicken. Um, like anyone else, I have a very different appreciation for chickens than most other people. My father was looking for chickens, and instead he found my mother. (laughs) He broke into that barn. They broke into the barn looking for food, looking for chickens. And uh, what would happen at night is my my grandparents and my mother would come out from under that hole, that stove in that hole, and they would actually fry the potato peels that were left by uh, the uh, this woman from the potatoes that she and my father broke into this with with this young man he broke into the the barn and uh, he found my mother and my grandparents my father happened to be related to my grandmother they were second cousins so they and they knew each other from the same town and my grandfather said to them you can't stay here it's not safe you have to come with us in the woods my grandparents were too frightened but they let my mother go. They told my mother, you should go, because they thought she'd be safer in the woods with my, with my father. Wow. 
So at this tender age of 14 and 17, my mother and father running around the woods together in the forest for about three years. And, uh, you know, I remember when, you know, basically the forest floor was their bed. <laughs> the stars, the moon, the sky, night sky was their blanket. I once asked my mother, I said, Mom, you and Dad, you know, in the forest, you had to huddle with each other for warmth. You know, the forest bed was your floor. The forest floor was your bed. Uh, you know, seemed a little romantic to me. I said, did anything ever happen? And my mother said in her Yiddish, uh, you know, Eastern European accent, darling, I don't want, I should embarrass you. you know, didn't want to embarrass me. So, no. <laughs> so apparently something happened. I don't know. But anyway, um, after the war, uh, they went back to the, farmhouse and lo and behold my grandparents were still there and then they all walked across the border to germany to a displaced persons camp for about four or five years until they all emigrated to new york and i grew up on the lower east side in a walk-up tenement the, you know the, uh, the in the jewish lower east side and like i describe often in certain pieces that i've written i said the holocaust lived with us the Holocaust, but it didn't have its own room where you could lock it up and just put it away. It lived in every room. It lived on, on all the walls. It lived in every photograph, every that that was preserved from the war. It lived on every religious article that my father or my grandfather managed to save. I remember my father kept. This, the Jewish star that Jews were forced to sew on their clothing was said Yud. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was on that too. I used to keep that at my bedside mm-hmm. as a four-year-old. Can you imagine? Oh my God. And, 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 uh, and why did, what, what, what was, was there a specific purpose to keeping that? For keeping it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, to never forget what happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. To never forget. And um, and it wasn't so much never forget the horror or never forget the fact that there was so much. It was to never forget the people who didn't have a chance to live. The, the all the relatives, my mother's brothers, uh, my fa- my father's entire family, never forget those who never lived. But a lot of people, uh, you know, you know, never forget is is a. Uh, the, in in in, uh, in Hebrew, the, uh, the the word for the Holocaust is called Shoah, and uh, you know uh, it's a it's a very uh, common thing for people to um, uh, to be determined never to forget uh, the Shoah. It's a little bit like slavery, you know. You've got to you've got to we can't we can't forget it that it happened. It's too, it's too important and too monumental. And to and you know, uh, it changed the world in in such a way that you can never lose sight of that fact. Uh, maybe you can forgive, but you can't forget, right? Uh, and uh, I kept it out of I kept it out of superstition, I believe. But so I uh, I grew up with my, my parents telling me all these stories of 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 how they survived, but also of all the people who died and all the people whose life, who never had a chance to have lives, right? 
And so for me as a four-year-old, death was very real. And I was very aware of death. I could not deny death. So in this process of creating who you are, where a lot of people create a life, a human life that has both awe and dread in it, I could, I could not deny the dread. I had, to, I had to create a life in which dread was a part of it. And I had to develop an attitude towards death. I had to find a way to relate to death. And actually, what I had to find was a way to relate to the suffering caused by being in that space between life and death, which is where my parents were for so many years, right? In those, in the woods. And, uh, and so death was very real to me. And uh, every morning when my mother would make breakfast for me and then eventually my younger brother, she would ask us the same question. She would ask, she would ask me actually, because I was the first born. She said, why am I here? Why am I here? The full question was, why am I here and everyone else is dead? Why did I survive and no one else did? Hardly anyone else did. And that was the question. It turned out that I was the answer. Uh, now, I don't remember if my mother actually ever spoke those words or I just got that message, you know, non-verbally. <laughs> but uh, the expectation was, the burden placed on me was that it was, my parents survived to get to the new world, you know, uh, New York, and, and live long enough so that I could be born. And that it was up to me to create a life and to become someone who had such a significant impact on the world, particularly in the arena of suffering, particularly in that space, that nexus between life and death, that my achievements, my impact on suffering being so significant was going to obviously redeem their, them uh, in terms of their survival, that they would be able to say, you see, of course we had to survive because if we didn't survive, there wouldn't be a Bill Breitbart in the world. They, might, they didn't call me Bill, they called me by my Yiddish name, <laughs> Belville. But, you know, so I was the, I was, my, my burden was to become this person, right? Now for, and I grew up in a community with a lot of kids, I went to all boys schools. A lot of my classmates grew up in very similar homes with very similar stories. And for many of us, this burden, like it was for me, turned into an inspiration. I created my life in, in response to that partially and uniquely. You know, my parents actually wanted me to be a cardiologist. They thought that was, but, the, but they didn't know that they had created someone who was meant to ease suffering. They didn't know what I was supposed to do. They just know I was supposed to do something. Uh, I was supposed to justify their survival. <laughs> um, they didn't quite have it all figured out. And so for me, it was an inspiration. And a lot, for a lot of my, my, my classmates, it was an inspiration. So the, you have no idea how many psychiatrists came out of my, my, my class. My class. <laughs> Psychiatrists, neuropsychiatrists 
psychiatrists, philosophers. I mean, it's, it's incredible, the concentration from my neighborhood and the, and the, the class that I was in, in the Orthodox Jewish school. Uh, but then for some of the, for some, so, some of my classmates, it was a crushing burden. The burden was crushing. And though I sometimes joke that those are the guys in my class who became dentists. <laughs> you, you couldn't, you weren't allowed to fall below that level. Right. You just inflict pain for a living. But, um, <laughs> and, and so, so it's no coincidence that I ended up at Memorial Sloan Kettering, working with, uh, developing and working in the area of psychiatric palliative care and then starting to, and having my research evolve from, I trained both in medicine and psychiatry because I was struggling with how do I, how do I heal people? How do I heal suffering? Do I do it? Do I heal the body or do I heal the soul? <laughs> you know, uh, the psyche. And it turned out I, I was destined to be at that nexus between the psyche and the, and the, and the soma, you know psychosomatic psyche is actually mind, mind and spirit in greek as as a, not it's not really a dichotomy of mind and body it's the mind body spirit so um i was i was really the spirit doctor and psych, psychiatrists are doctors of the soul psyche <laughs> that's what we are uh but i put myself in the environment of pe where people were dealing with facing death, they were, they were unavoidably having to face their mortality because of the cancer. Uh, but, you know, in the beginning, I wasn't quite, I wasn't quite certain about where, where I had to be. And so I, I, I moved back and forth between medicine and psychiatry. And then I found myself doing fellowship in, uh, in, at Sloan Kettering. And I started doing research on medical aspects of psychiatric, you know, psychiatric aspects of medical problems, depression, Delirium, uh, drug trials, on fatigue, pain, and then and then I then I landed in the world of existential despair, desire for haste and death, things like that, and, what, and then reverted back to medical stuff like how, what happens if you treat depression and desire for haste? Oh, it gets better, but then I stumbled on meaning, the loss of meaning and hope, and, and I really got to do work in the in the arena of of meaning and and existence and what it you know, and, and, and the who you are, how do you sustain a life of meaning and still experience awe knowing that this is just temporary? How do you thrive even in that space of temporary existence? And that's the story. It's a beautiful story. And thank you for telling this story. It gets better every time. I think that there are extra details that I did not know about your grandparents and, and, and how your dad came to the picture. So I really do appreciate it. And, and, and you know, like thinking about specifically the meaning in the middle of suffering, that's something that it's, it's sometimes hard to grasp, right? Like we have some degree of suffering that okay maybe we have somebody sometimes family members will die sometimes we will uh, embrace break up some physical illness to some extent we, we do experience suffering but at some point as we get older and we get more sick 
and in the case of our patients, when we have when when cancer comes into the picture, and sometimes terminal cancer, and really really difficult to treat cancer, it can be hard for a cancer patient to say, "How can I thrive in the middle of all this suffering?" And and surprisingly, I mean, yeah, it's possible. And and I've had patients that that have done so beautifully and 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 i and i love to 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 create that comparison with victor frankl who was able to truly find meaning in the middle of being trapped in that concentration camp it's yeah. not exactly the same as cancer but like the the one thing that disease or nazis can fully take away from you is your attitude towards your life right. the way you think about things yeah but, you know, that uh, and this whole idea of attitudinal sources of meaning, in other words, you can choose your attitude towards suffering. Is like, that was the hardest thing for me to understand. And, uh, and um, I finally uh, uh, grew to understand it in a slightly different way. I mean, it's, it's the same thing, but um, who you are comes back to who you are and authenticity who you are is is you what makes up who you are is your attitude right your perspective on things your attitude the way you think about things right uh, uh, be, being who you are authentically right now um, how can it, how can you experience beauty and joy in something that's in suffering, right? How can you, how can you experience meaning in the face of suffering? Um, my father, I, I sat with my father as he was dying for the last 18 hours of his life at next, holding his hand, sitting beside him, sometimes lying beside him in his bed, my mother on the other side. It was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. The last thing I did just before he died is he, he was unshaven and my father was the manager of a restaurant and it, he was an impeccable man in a sense of he never, he had to always be clean shaven, wear a crisp suit so that he could be the face of this very famous restaurant on the Lower Side. And he had about two weeks of stubble and I knew he wouldn't want to die unshaven so I started to shave him I, I put you know lather on his face and I shaved one half of his face and I got to the middle of the face half the job was done and my mother was in the kitchen cleaning dishes or something and he exhaled and died and I stood there for a second and I said, do I call my mother in and tell her that dad died? Or do I finish the job and then call my mother in? And I've asked, I've asked hundreds, thousands of people what they would have done. Everyone basically says the same thing. They said, I would have finished the job. Is that what you would have said? That's exactly what I was thinking. So that's what I did. I finished the job and then I called my mother in. Um, I was holding my father's hand, who's unconscious, and every, I could feel his pulse, every beat of his pulse, right? 
was an expression of love for me. It was just, uh, I, it was, so how could you say that my father dying was beautiful, but it was, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what it boils down to is the fact of who we are. When we experience anything, whether it be joyous or tragic, uh, when we do it uniquely, authentically as a human being, the way only a human being can do it, we experience meaning. So if you're dying and you die as only a human being dies, that's meaningful. If you're giving birth, if you're a human woman giving birth to a human child and only the way a human being can give birth, that is meaningful. It's authentically human. So if you if we are being our true authentic human selves and if even more so being able to still um still hold on to the essence of who we are authentically a loving person right if my death is about loving everyone and if my death is not about me but about teaching everyone else not to be afraid of death then it's meaningful, it's beautiful, right? So that's how, that's, that's my idea of attitude, right? Uh, in the face of, you know, choosing attitudes or suffering. Um, that's how you can, there can be beauty, there can be joy, there can be meaning in, uh, in suffering. I wouldn't go out of my way to, uh, to find suffering, to experience suffering. <laughs> uh, un un you know, avoidable suffering should be avoided. Uh, but inevitably in life, uh, Viktor Frankl called it the tragic triad of life. In life, you will, uh, you will inevitably encounter um, death, suffering, and guilt. And what he meant was existential guilt. He called it the tragic triad of life. Uh, if you get old enough, you realize it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the existential guilt, the, and that also falls into the whole idea of who you are, right? Right. The idea of existential guilt is that you did not fully become who you could have been, right? You didn't fully become who you could have been. Yeah, you will never be. No, but hardly ever, anybody achieves yeah. that, right? So we're yeah. all die with a little bit of existential guilt. And that's why it's important to be able to forgive. Forgive yourself. Yeah. yeah. And that's where love comes in. It's a lot easier to forgive anybody you love. And that's why it's important to cultivate love for yourself because ultimately in your lifetime, you're going to have to forgive yourself for what your regrets, what you didn't achieve, what you didn't accomplish, the jobs you didn't finish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that, I think we should close the episode with that um, yes. it's a beautiful episode it basically i'm gonna name it who are you who are you who okay. are you yeah and well thank you so thank much you for what it, yeah i think that we have i have learned just listening to you for this last hour so i really do appreciate it i appreciate it too i hope you get a lot of uh, fan mail from this <laughs> well, if I get hate mail, I'll let you know, too. Okay, tell me about the hate mail, too. <laughs> I have ways of dealing with haters. 
All right. If, okay. if nobody hates you, then you didn't really stand for anything. Dividing from chaos to thriving.